Welcome to the Starfire Codes podcast, where we discuss metaphysics, survival, the media, and the truth. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Amy Pitchell. We're here today with Howard Bloom. Howard Bloom of the Howard Bloom Institute has been called the Einstein, Newton, and Freud of the 21st century by Britain's Channel 4 TV. One of his seven books, Global Brain, was the subject of a symposium thrown by the Office of the Secretary of Defense, including representatives from the State Department, the Energy Department, DARPA, IBM, and MIT. His work has been published in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Wired, Psychology Today, and the Scientific American. He does news commentary at 1.06 a.m. Eastern Time every Wednesday night on 545 radio stations on Coast to Coast AM. Howard Bloom, Part 1. Welcome to the show, Howard. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Emmy. It's wonderful to see you again. It's great to see you, too. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Well, it's it's sort of gotten less descriptive than it used to be. It used to be a nonstop series of adventures. Um, I'm I'm finishing my eighth book. Um, it's called The Case of the Sexual Cosmos. Everything you know about nature is wrong. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, as with most of my books, it's a book of heresies, but heresies that I hope are so deeply supported um, with research and citations that it's it's heresies that provide an alternative reality that is an alternative reality that we should be paying not just serious attention to we should be living in it we should be thinking within its frame um so that's right now i'm stealing every available moment i can for that and and for the last three years i've had a 29 year old girlfriend although when we started she was 26 three years ago um and that's that's a good thing to have when you're about to be 80, because I'll be 80 in two days. Happy um, birthday. <laughs> thank you. And the Howard Bloom Institute is it's on this planet in order to take my my works and my way of thought and make sure that it continues to advance after I croak. Um, because because when I was a little kid, nobody wanted me in Buffalo, New York, and other kids wouldn't have anything to do with me. And my parents wouldn't have anything to do with me either. Um, I found a book and the book said the first two rules of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the example of Galileo or told the story all wrong, but I needed the heroic version. So (laughs) and uh, it told the story of Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the man who invented the microscope. So I was uh, did I tell you the second rule? The second rule is look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. That's the van Leeuwenhoek rule. So two guys. Um, Galileo and Anton von Leeuwenhoek reached out across a distance of 350 years and saved this lost child, me, in Buffalo, New York. So my job is to reach out over the next 350 years and save the next lost kid. But meanwhile, it's very gratifying to learn that my books are saving kids currently. I have uh, about 500 pages of emails from people telling me uh, I had no idea of why I was on this planet. I really didn't like being alive. And then when I was 16, I ran into fill in the name of one of my books and it saved my life. And then more recently, I've started getting these emails saying, when I was 15, I was totally confused about life and your book saved me. And now I'm 32 and your book is still saving me. So it's so, already happening. You, didn't, yes, you don't even have to reach but, across 350 right. years. But the real goal is that kid 350 years from now. 
Absolutely. So that's fantastic. That must feel so great to get those kinds of messages. It feels very good because I, most of my life have been clinically depressed, which means uh, life has been very hard to bear from one second to the next. I'm out of that, thank God. But still, there are days when you wake up and feel you're of no use to anybody on the planet. And it's very, in theory, it's very helpful to have 500 pages of people telling you that you've been of use in their life. The only problem, Demi, is that on a day when you're depressed, you are so depressed, you have no interest in opening a file like that. Right, right. Yeah, it, it takes a lot to even look at it at that point. But to know that it's there and to know that you yes. can go back to it when you remember that it's there. Right. And to absolutely. know that, that, that people had those kinds of thoughts and feelings about you and that you've changed those lives. That's amazing. Right. And another thing along these lines, uh, like the lines of, I guess, what you call personal validation. Um, I was in bed for 15 years with an illness, as you know. And when I, and while I was in bed, I uh, wrote three books, and I and I and I founded two international scientific groups. So when I finally got out of bed in 2003 and sat out in the sunlight on the benches in front of a cafe around the corner called the Tea Lounge, I realized I had something I had not had when I had been knocked out of the real world in 1988 by illness. Um, I could say I was the author of two published books Absolutely. and I was, and it made a radical difference in my sense of value to others because without feeling of value to others, you shrivel and die. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a great place to, uh, to start to come back from, especially after enduring what you did and knowing that, that you've got your work out there and knowing that it, that it's only up from here. You're building, you're, you're creating on top of that. Plus there was one other, there were probably several other advantages to this monstrous, awful illness. You know, I was two weeks to talk for five years. I couldn't have another person in the room with me for five years. And, and I, finally realized I had to stop struggling to my front room, which was my office, and trying to work at a desk and just lay on the bed because it was taking too much energy to try to sit up. And, and I had a very limited amount of energy. So I had my um, assistant set up two computers next to the bed. Why two computers? Because this thing, your cell phone, has probably a thousand to 10,000 times the power of a computer back then back then so and and we got this miracle chinese box that allowed me to control both computers from one keyboard and one monitor and the internet saved my life so because i could have an identity on the internet i could go anywhere that existed on the internet i could not do that in real life the furthest i could go in real life was my bathroom um and I could meet with other people and I could lead other people of all things on the Internet, even while I was totally flat on my back. So when George Nori, the host of Coast to Coast, mm -hmm. um, for whom I do a, a news commentary every single week, he gives me my topic often about four hours before the show. And then I have to become the world's leading expert on that topic, because my goal is to show you sides, facets of that topic that you're not going to read in the standard media. And I'm not talking woohoo. I'm not talking weird stuff. 
and I'm not talking flying saucers or anything of the sort. I mean real, solid, <laughs> verifiable information. Um, and so he has frequently called over the last five months about things like TikTok and the movement to ban TikTok and the bill that's in Congress to ban the use of social media for any kids under the age of 13 and to restrict it for kids between 13 and 18 to, if you have parental permission, that is backed up by documentation, birth certificates and stuff of that sort. And the general mood of the press, and this has been true for a long time, has been get rid of, like knock Mark Zuckerberg out of his seat, put him in jail, um, tear Google down. These are all hideous, monstrous monopolies manipulating us. I know from my experience of 15 years being saved in my bedroom by the internet, that these are tools of empowerment and that the very people who are calling for the end of big tech are calling to disempower all of us. And people don't understand that when they get these messages about supposedly liberating them from big tech, no, they are being asked to be imprisoned in a reality that disappeared when the internet uh, became available roughly 1980. So the internet can save your life, it saved mine. Plus, there's this uh, old principle which was true up until 2005, and I haven't had a chance to see how it's making out these days. It's called the Flynn effect. And um, uh, what's his name, Johnson? Um, one of, a science writer, he's a very good one, did a book called Everything Bad is Good for You and uh, pointed to the Flynn effect. The Flynn effect means that if you take an average hundred kids off the street today who you are told have been dumbed down and shallowed by Facebook and TikTok and Twitter, um, and you give them an IQ test from 1916, the first year the IQ test was ever given, they will measure an average of marginal genius. This is any hundred kids off the street in America. Um, they will average an IQ of 135, meaning that we've added 35 points to the average IQ since, two, since 1916. Now, how in the world did that happen? Well, in 1922, we had radio. In approximately 1950, we had television. Up until radio and television, when people were alone in the house with nothing to do, they did very little. They did nothing for their mind unless they picked up a book or a magazine. Um, but starting with the electronic era in 1922, with the birth of radio when 600 radio stations, commercial radio stations, were licensed in the United States, people have had stuff flowing through their head all the time. And remember, you probably don't. The days when we used to walk down the street to, in my case, because it's New York, the subway, um, in your case, to possibly get your car um, or to possibly go from your car to a, to a restaurant to have lunch with a friend. Those walks were periods of interminable boredom because you had nothing you could listen to. You had no form of information flowing through you. Well, ever since the invention of uh, the iPod, 
um, by Steve Jobs, that has no longer been the case. You can have music flowing through you. Then Steve Jobs invented the podcast. You can have podcasts flowing through you. In my case, with a Kindle, I was one. Kevin Kelly and I were among the first people to buy um, these things, to buy Kindles. <laughs> and so you can have a book flowing through your brain. You can have the entire New York Times flowing through your brain. Um, so no wonder people are 35 IQ points smarter than they used to be a little over 100 years ago. Um, and I haven't seen the latest Flynn figures to see how IQ has gone up. These are figures I'm giving you that are valid as of 2005. I haven't seen what's happened between 2005 and 2023, but I guarantee you the IQ of kids are growing up and kids who are as lost as I was can find validation on the internet by discovering groups of other kids who are going through a parallel experience. Those other kids may be in Portugal uh, or Chile or Denmark or Russia, but they will find their peers online and those peers will validate each other. Um, and there's something funny about evolution. Evolution depends on the oddball effect. That is every time uh, a sperm gets together with an egg, they create a new genome, a genome that's never existed before. The first of its kind and the only of its kind anywhere in the universe. So your infant is going to be a one of a kind, a new probe of a universe that's reaching out her antennae, her fingertips to go beyond the boundaries of existing possibility and test the realm of the impossible and then fish that impossible into reality. That's what having oddball children, 8 billion of them, does. Um, each one is a unique probe head into possibility space. And not only do kids come out totally odd, but there are others very similar to them in their oddness sprinkled around the planet. Spain, Italy, Portugal, India, China, somewhere, there are kids very similar to that oddball kid. And guess what happens when oddballs get together? I call it the birds of a feather effect, that they attract each other. But they form a new subculture of their own. And that subculture comes up with alternatives for society, alternative hypotheses about what reality is all about. And that's how evolution happens. Evolution happens when uh, in, in a biological life because oddballs find each other and then they procreate with each other and they pass their oddball qualities on to a new generation. And that new generation grows up in a subculture of other oddball parents like them and eventually oddball grandparents as well. For example, there were dinosaurs about 140 million years ago who were born with a strange deformation. Um, you know how lots of dinosaurs have these great big head shields and they have great big horns and it's ornamentation. It's bizarre ornamentation. Well, the bizarre ornamentation these poor dinosaurs were born with were these spines sticking out of their skin with fluffy stuff on them. So you, if you were one of those born with this peculiar deformation, um, you were odd odd dinosaur out in the social group because dinosaurs like you and me are social 
They travel in packs. Um, but if you could find another dinosaur who had been born with your deformity, you could not only fall in love and mate, whatever the dinosaur version of falling in love is, but by mating, you would take that deformation and pass it on to a next generation of kids. And eventually they would form a large enough social group to defend themselves and to go out and find new possibilities, new ways of living for themselves. And in the process, eventually, you know, animals, we are told that we should obey the laws of nature, right? That we're, we're screwing the planet, we're raping the planet and all that kind of stuff. No, nature loves to have her laws broken. How do we know? Because deep in the ocean, very distant relatives of ours from whom we parted company about 550 million years ago are living in hierarchical societies. They've never heard of a patriarchy. They've never heard of the <laughs> agricultural industrial revolution. They've never heard of capitalism. Nonetheless, they arrange themselves in a hierarchical society. And to do that, males go up against each other in showdowns. And what are the showdowns all about? To see who can get his head up the highest. Who can break nature's most, grace, most basic law, gravity, the most effectively? And the one who outheights, who does the better job of breaking the law of gravity, wins. And then the two lobsters or crayfish, um, they go through what crayfish researchers called the equivalent of an entire brain transplant. The crayfish who loses is flooded with the hormones of defeat. And he starts walking around crouched on his legs as low to the ground as he can get, obeying the laws of gravity to the, to the nth degree. But the lobster who wins is pumped with hormones like octopamine, which are the hormones of victory. And he stands tall, that's breaking the law of gravity again, he stands tall, he struts around, and every night he goes to the little cave openings where the subservient lobsters, the losers, have holed up for the night, and he knocks on the door, and he demands another confrontation, in which, of course, he wins. And he does this with every other lobster in the bunch. So this this business of, of hierarchy and breaking the laws of gravity are, are lobsters and crayfish um, crazed capitalists, <laughs> not on your life. And lizards do the same thing. He who breaks gravity, breaks the law of gravity the best, wins. And they go through total hormonal changes, the hormones of submission in one case, the hormones of victory in the other case. And you could see it in their skin because the lizard that loses turns brown. And the lizard that wins turns a bright green. Wow. wow hormones coursing through their system um and the hormone or the the lizard that loses like the lobster stays close to the ground in a position of defeat crawls around but not the winning lizard the winning lizard goes to the highest object around and climbs to its top so he can see so he can be master of all these surveys like the opening of the lion king um, the opening of the Lion King taps directly into some instinct we share with lobsters, lizards, um, and crayfish. 
Um, of climbing so, to heights. Yeah, right. Climbing to heights, which means breaking what law? The gravity. law of gravity. So does nature really want us um, to comply with her rules? Um, does she really want us in harmony? Well, there's never been a harmony. A fox to survive and to feed its cubs needs to kill a rabbit. I see no harmony in that picture. None. I don't care how people excuse it. It's inexcusable. Absolutely inexcusable. So nature puts us on this planet to rape her. What do I mean by that? Life is unnatural. The planet started with nothing but what's called abiotic material, dead matter. And then life had the audacity to spring up and break every law of that natural planet, to desecrate that natural planet. And then over the course of um, almost 4 billion years to rape as much raw, pristine stone as possible, to rape as many virgin cracks and gullies as possible, and to fill those things with life. Well, that's totally unnatural. If nature had wanted life to invade her every pore and crevice, um, she would have made life to begin with. But no, life sprung up in rebellion against all of the rules of nature. Life is a weed. You can't stop it. And in four billion years, what has nature done? I mean, what has life done? Life has greened and gardened the place. But it has done so by utilizing as much virgin rock and as many um, dead atoms as possible. The basic mandate of life is kidnap, seduce, and recruit as many dead atoms as you can into this grand enterprise of life. And despite all that life has achieved in the last four billion years, it has only scarcely scratched the surface of this planet. How do you know? Well, you take a plane from LA to New York to see me someday and look down, get a window seat and look down over the landscape as you travel. And you will see that approximately two thirds of the United States is brown. Life has not really succeeded in greening and gardening it yet. And and the surface, you know, we moan and groan about having run out of resources, a limit to resources, um, which came from the Club of Rome computer simulation in 1972, every single one of whose predictions has been disproven. Right. And in science, if your predictions are disproven, you have to either modify your hypothesis or throw it away as false. Exactly. Well, it's false. Um, the <laughs> predictions. Every one of them has failed. Um, and so we think we are running out of resources. We are not. Based not on an old sense. model that, that's been disproven. Yeah. And so in reality, um, for every ounce of living matter on this planet, there are a hundred a hundred million ounces of dead stuff mm -hmm. just waiting to be kidnapped, seduced, and recruited. Okay, <laughs> the stuff is waiting to be kidnapped, seduced, and recruited. Isn't that more of the dominance um, approach, the male dominance, horrible approach? Isn't that more of raping the earth? Well, right now, um, 12 miles beneath your feet and mine, there are bacteria eating raw rock, 
and turning it into biomatter, kidnapping, seducing, and recruiting rock, basalt, granite, and turning it into living matter, recruiting it into the grand project of life. They are not assuming that we are running out of resources, not by any stretch of the imagination. Now, are those bacteria mad capitalist rapists or are they nature? Nature, so, absolutely. Yeah. So what is nature trying to tell us? And meantime, bacteria can do all kinds of amazing research and development. And they work so fast at research and development that we have a very hard time keeping up with them. And sometimes they get ahead of us, as in COVID-19. Um, but there's one unique characteristic that we humans have that no other species on the planet has. Yes, birds can fly, um, but and insects can fly, but we are the only ones who can take this grand enterprise of life beyond the gravity well. We are the only ones. Look, life over the course of the last four billion years has greened and, and uh, gardened a poison pill of stone, the home of climate catastrophe. Um, this is a planet of climate disaster. And yet life has seized hold of it and managed to garden and green it. Well, how many other poison pills of stone are hovering above our heads just waiting to be gardened and green? And there are people who write entire books saying that if we dare set foot again on the moon or on Mars, we are desecrating nature. Are you kidding me? Nature <laughs> is this blank and hostile stone, and that's all nature ever aspired to be? Haven't you ever seen life? Haven't you ever caught its spirit? Which is raise yourself high, throw a fist to the sky, and rebel with greenery? Um, life needs to do that. It wants to do that. It aches to do that on po other poison pills of stone, other homes of climate catastrophe, because that's all that life has ever had as a cradle or a nest is a planet of poisonous climate catastrophe. And life has managed to tame that in the case of at least one planet. So this is kind of the, some of the stuff that I'm writing about in in the new book. That's great. And and to to further that, you know, uh, even though we're looking at it as a catastrophe, it's it's the environment that that we came up in and it's what we've made do with and it's what we've thrived on. Well, so, you know, for granted this. Yeah. This, when this planet started, um, it was swiveling at four times the speed it's swiveling today. That means that if you picked a place on the planet to stay um, for three hours, you were smacked with this poisonous stuff, flooded with it, um, called radiation, mm -hmm. um, light, and especially ultraviolet light. And then for three hours, you were, you were smacked with something equally poisonous, darkness. And the temperature went up and down approximately 88 degrees every three hours when you swivel from <laughs> the radiation into the darkness. And that was just the beginning of climate catastrophe because the planet was tilted um, on its axis with relationship to the sun. And the result was four major climate changes every year. We call them summer, winter, fall, and spring. <laughs> that were just naturally occurring. <laughs> yeah, and, and how adapted are we to climate catastrophe? We sleep during the darkness. Our body goes into an entirely different kind of living 
for eight hours a night approximately mm -hmm. because it's an adaptation to the peculiarities of this planet and its massive changes darkness and light day and night and we take these climate changes for granted and then there's another peculiarity in addition to that tilt on the axis there is this little wobble and the little wobble creates major climate disasters every 22,000, 42,000, 100,000, and I think it's 240,000 years. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, without smokestacks, without tailpipes, without nasty capitalism. <laughs> it's always been happening. Yeah, right, exactly. So our task is to go fuck you to these problems <laughs> and whenever we can to harvest them as energy sources, mm -hmm. to harvest them as adaptive niches. Um, and that's what we, life, have been doing. Look at the monarch butterfly. It That little tiny thing, the size of a Rice Krispie, um, with great big wings, but its body is the size of a Rice Krispie. It manages to fly thousands of miles. It knows when to join its pack in flying. Um, it flies in two generations. First, it flies from Canada down to North Carolina or something like that, it gets halfway on its trip. Then it settles down and it has children, it has kids, and those kids travel the remaining thousand miles or 2000 miles to Mexico, to one spot where all the monarch butterflies from the West Coast and the East Coast gather. How the hell do they have the internal um, navigation circuitry to know where they are going, for God's sakes, in those tiny little bodies. How in the world do they have enough energy to travel 2,000 miles in that teensy, weensy little body encumbered by those huge wings and by the necessity to fly? Um, we don't know. But it is an enormous biological adaptation to what? To climate change, for God's sakes. Um, so, you know, it is very possible. Well, I just ran into a piece of research a few minutes ago um, before we got on the phone that says that a bunch of researchers have researched a period like ours 970,000 years ago. What do I mean by a period like ours? It's a period between ice ages. Mm -hmm. And ice ages, we had ice ages as long ago as the upper Dryas um, 11,000 years ago. And we're overdue for an yes, ice age right absolutely. now. And the uh, the period in between ice ages that humans would have been comfortable in 970,000 years ago lasted 10,800 years. And we've exceeded that. So the authors of this article feel that by putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, we have prevented the next ice age. Now, do we need to learn how to create climate stabilization technologies so that we can stabilize the climate the way we want to? Absolutely. We've been on the track of climate stabilization technologies since we used a stone axe to kill an animal and remove its hide and use it as a fur coat. And that was probably 3.2 million years ago. Um, <laughs> We've been using climate stabilization technology since 17,000 years ago, when we would take the tusks and ribs of mammoths and set up a framework and throw a bunch of sewn together mammoth hides over the whole thing. 
and create a tent for four to seven families. That was a climate stabilization technology. Um, and then we invented 11,000 years ago, the stone wall. And then about 9,000 years ago, we invented the brick and the brick wall and the rectangular room, which produced things no human had ever seen before, right angles and flat planes, without which we wouldn't have stuff like geometry and architecture. Um, so we need to get a handle on the climate big time. And if we want to stabilize the climate the way it was in 1650, before the Industrial Revolution, fine. First of all, don't say you're bringing back nature. Nature's nature is <laughs> violent, horrific change. Um, admit that this is an anthropogenic decision. And secondly, develop the climate stabilization technologies that will make this possible. And what do I mean by climate stabilization technologies? There's a participant in one of the groups that I run, um, the Big Bang Tango Media Lab on Sunday nights, and his name is Steve Nixon, and he's a polymath inventor, and he wants to erect these giant chimneys um, that start at the ground and go six miles high. And what these things will do is they will harvest the changes in the atmosphere that make tornadoes and thunderstorms. How? Because the air pressure six miles high is radically different from the air pressure on the ground. Mm -hmm. The temperature six miles high is radically different than the temperature on the ground. So these chimneys will suck in warm air and send them it shooting way up into the troposphere um, and will generate tremendous amounts of energy as they do and will allow us to help control the temperature to take heat out of the atmosphere. And since we should be able in theory to switch these things on and off, um, we can modulate the temperature, not, they will not run out of control. And then there's one of my favorite solutions, which can bring us to net zero in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, in fact, a more reasonable amount of time than most people are projecting for other technologies. It's called harvesting solar power in space and transmitting it to earth. And with solar power harvested in space, we can replace all the use of fossil fuels for energy production, and transportation, all of it. Um, and that will take us to our goal, net zero. Then we'll only have to worry about cows farting um, when it comes to greenhouse. <laughs> However, if these, research, if these researchers who I was reading today are correct, um, we have to recognize that we have raised the carbon dioxide level and we need to keep it high or the next ice age is going to come and slice us to bits with glaciers. Yeah, we're due for one anyway, but we're also due for um, for grand solar minimum, according to some scientists. We're due for a super grand solar minimum. We're, we're due for, for cold weather, regardless of how you look at it. So, yeah. you know, to even be saying, you know, that we're expecting anything warm is, is uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that I believe that. So, you know, it, it's the, the ice is incoming, definitely. Right. So, and we need to be aware of the fact that climate change is not a man-made thing. That climate change right. is nature and nature is vicious, nasty, and brutal. And nature has given birth to us to challenge her nastiness and brutality. Um, you know, we, we humans as a species have more than just the ability to take ecosystems 
um, to other poison pills of stone. We have dreamed, and how many years we dreamed this is very hard to tell, but we have dreamed of justice and peace. And that's been a dream all over the planet. And our job is to effectuate our dreams, to turn our dreams into reality, to actually produce justice and peace. Not a form of justice that is actually oppression in disguise, um, like the Soviet Union was with its Marxist system, and Mao's China was with its Marxist system, killing approximately 80 to 80 million people between them. Real justice and peace. Um, however, to make that justice and peace happen, we will have to recognize that inequality is a part of the way that nature runs life yes. um, and social systems, and that hierarchies, social hierarchies are extremely important. You know, without, we just went through three years of a COVID lockdown. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't as uncomfortable by any means as the lockdown, a similar lockdown, in 1919 um, for the Spanish plague um, it, because people were locked in their homes with no way to get food. No, they had to go out in order just to, to feed themselves. We don't have to. We had the privilege for three years of ordering anything we wanted to be delivered within 24 hours on Amazon Prime. Right. So there's a reason Jeff Bezos is a billionaire. He's a billionaire <laughs> because he, the job of capitalism's basic mandate is be messianic. Now, most capitalists don't realize this, but they have to do it whether they realize it or not, or they're not going to make money. And by being messianic, I mean their job is to uh, uplift, upgrade, and empower. To hear part two of this interview, please subscribe at starfirecodes.com.